Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Luke 19, verse 28. We are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke. And we're calling it Following Jesus in the Wilderness. And we're calling it this because right in the middle of Luke's Gospel, Jesus embarks on a wilderness journey. Uh, but this wilderness journey is not an aimless wilderness journey. So Luke nine fifty one says, and I'm quoting what Luke says, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so the wilderness journey of Jesus has a destination, and that destination is Jerusalem. And on this Palm Sunday, Jesus finally enters his destination, Jerusalem. And so let's read what happens next, starting in verse 28 of Luke 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the house at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, hem you on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Lord, with the words of my mouth, and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock, our redeemer. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you to soften our hearts this morning, so that what we encounter in your word would change us. We're eager, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're expectant this morning. 
for you to speak to us in a supernatural way. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I recently got a text from the wife of one of my best men in my wedding. I had two. I cheated. And uh, she's organizing at this time basically a party, a 40-year-old birthday party uh, for my for my friend. Now, I hope he's not listening to my sermons right now, because this is a surprise party. Uh, he wanted to see if I could come, and her text was not just to me, uh, but to a group of guys. We all lived in the same house on campus. And there were four of us, and we had this uh, amazing time when we were there. Now, <laughs> we were all Bible study leaders, so... You know, our house was pretty tame as they go. But sometimes things got out of hand. And they especially got out of hand with our pranking. Because we used to prank one another quite a bit. And this prank war uh, was never ending and it always seemed to escalate. <laughs> never, It never died down. It only got worse and worse. And so one weekend, I was out of town in Cincinnati. And when I came back, late Sunday evening, my perfectly organized bedroom was completely rearranged. Some of you are laughing because you know me. Um, I walk in and my housemates are all laughing as well. But I was not laughing when I walked in. I wasn't laughing at all. It triggered something in me and I got really upset. And and they stopped laughing and things got really awkward really fast because they were really, really excited about the prank. And I was not. Um, All they did was rearrange my furniture. They didn't break anything. They didn't do anything uh, else. All they did was rearrange it. That's it. But it really threw me off. See, my bedroom in those days, perhaps even today, uh, it's like the one area where I really feel like, okay, this is my space. This is my mini kingdom. And when my friends messed with my room, they were messing with more than my room. Do you see? They were revealing an idol deeply lodged inside of my heart. They were revealing an idol of self-rule. Self-rule. Deep down, I don't want anybody rearranging my life. The fancy word for this is autonomy. Auto means self. Nami, namas means rule. Autonomy means self-rule. Nothing irks us more than a loss of autonomy. I learned about this uh, fascinating study which shows just how much we crave autonomy in our life. So 100 people were offered a work promotion in this study that was done. Some were offered a promotion which gave them more influence but less autonomy as a leader. Others were offered a position with less influence but more autonomy as a leader. Only 26% took the promotion with less autonomy, but 62% took the promotion with autonomy. What's the takeaway? We value autonomy. We value self-rule more than anything else, even influencing others. Harvard Business Review recently published an article called Forget Flexibility. Your employees want autonomy. And so CEOs and leaders of organizations across the world who are reading this journal are being encouraged to give their workers a job, kind of like my college bedroom. You can have autonomy. Arrange arrange how you do it, however you want to do it. Because nothing irks us more than the loss of autonomy. 
You know, we might say, if it's not autonomy, it's tyranny. You can't tell me what to do. The only rule or reign that I trust is my own. Autonomy. Self-rule. Well, this Sunday is a serious challenge to autonomy. This Sunday is a serious challenge to self-rule because this Sunday is all about one thing. The rule of Jesus. The reign of Jesus. I grew up in church loving Palm Sunday because it gave me something to do during the homily. I could kind of tear my palm like a string cheese. You know what I'm talking about? Little did I know that Palm Sunday is about an explosive truth. Jesus is rightful king overall, even me. And that's what palms signify, actually. So, waving palms in Israel was like waving an American flag in the 4th of July party today. And so on this day that Jesus enters Jerusalem, the crowds are saying something profound and earth-shattering with their behavior. What they're basically saying is Jesus is king. And in this passage that we just heard read aloud, we see two reactions to this very claim that Jesus is king. We see a reaction from the Pharisees, and we see a reaction from the disciples. And so let's just take a look at each and see if we can locate ourselves on this reaction spectrum. So with the Pharisees... Uh, the Pharisees obviously catch a glimpse of the reign of Jesus. They see the palms go out. They hear the, the psalm being sung aloud about the king entering into his city. And they don't want anything to do with it. So that if you look at verse 14 of our chapter, they even say it straight up. They say, hey, what? We don't want this man to reign over us. I appreciate the honesty. And that might be some of us. We love Jesus, we like Jesus, we find Jesus wise, we find him interesting, we find him insightful, we find him inspirational, but at the end of the day, we don't want this man to reign over us. You can live in my house, don't rearrange my furniture. The disciples have a different take. They're more receptive to the rule of Jesus, aren't they? So they followed him throughout the wilderness as we've been looking at. Uh, They saw all these miraculous things which they talk about in their praise of him. And they clearly are welcoming his reign in our passage. Now, they have a lot to learn about his rule. They have a lot to learn about King Jesus. They don't want a crucified king, as we will learn shortly in Holy Week. They don't want a crucified loser king, as they would interpret it. But whereas the Pharisees reject his rule as he enters into his city, the disciples are more receptive and even welcoming to his rule. And that's our story too, isn't it? We are all somewhere on this continuum between rejection and reception. And it's Luke's aim, I think, to move his readers, that's us, that's you, that's me, more and more towards the receiving side of the spectrum, away from the rejecting side. Of the spectrum. He wants us to see the rule and reign of Jesus as a good thing so that when every knee shall bow, our knees are willingly bowing. We want to bow. And he gives us two reasons to receive, even welcome, the reign of Jesus. 
And the first is that the reign of Jesus is sovereign, and the second is that it is surprising. And I want to look at both of these dynamics in our text this morning, starting with the sovereignty of Jesus. The reason to receive his rule, number one, is because Jesus is sovereign. This passage doesn't hint that Jesus is king. This passage shouts that Jesus is king, and not just king over our little hearts, but king over everything. The first bold shout is Psalm 118. So this is the psalm that they're singing in verse 38. In verse 38, this psalm is a messianic psalm. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. That is a loaded psalm with expectation, with hope about a coming king. A king who would finally come to Jerusalem. A son of David who would come to the city of David and finally be enthroned as king, rightful king. So that's a bold shout. The second bold shout is in their cloaks and what they do with it. So if you rewind a bit to verse 36 in the text, as he rode along, the crowd spread out their cloaks on the road ahead of him, it says. This is odd to us. It's strange, a strange detail. But in those days, it was like rolling out the red carpet for a dignitary or even a royalty. So in 2 Kings 9, 13, we see this happen when Jehu is anointed as king. I'll just quote from 2 Kings. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under Jehu on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and they proclaimed, Jehu is king. And the third bold shout in our text is the donkey. Doesn't look like it at first, but, but it's apparent as we read this text that Jesus appears, appears to have prepared the donkey in advance. We don't know for sure, but it looks like he's signaling to everyone, like this is a prepared parable, only this time it's not words, it's actions. And he's signaling to everyone who knows their Bible that he is the king promised in Zechariah 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. So Jesus is saying with his actions, Behold, your king is coming to you. And so the first thing that we see right away from this passage on Palm Sunday is that the reign of Jesus is no joke. Um, his claims are absolute. He's not saying to us, I rule over all. Um, but if that's not your thing, that's cool. I understand. Now when he enters Jerusalem, he speaks of sure judgment. For all who reject his rule. In verses 41 through 44. Palm Sunday makes a giant claim. Jesus is king. He's king of all. Uh, one of my favorite bands, at least sonically, is The National. And they come from Dayton, actually, I think. Ohio, or someplace in Ohio. I could be wrong. Um, and they have a song called Fake Empire. And it begins like this. Stay out super late tonight, picking apples, making pies. Put a little something in our lemonade and take it with us. 
We're half awake in a fake empire. We're half awake in a fake empire. And you listen along, and you just feel in your body as you're listening to the song that something is deeply wrong. It's really kind of a lament of a song. There's something really deeply wrong with our world. It's a, in their words, a fake empire. And it's hard to know for them if this fake empire is a political statement or more likely a spiritual statement. Our self-rule doesn't work. And to survive our self-rule, we have to pretend everything's okay. We stay up late. We make apple pies. We turn lemons into lemonade, but we have to spike it in order to survive. We put a little something in our lemonade, they say. We're half awake. We're half awake in this fake empire. In my life of self-rule, I have to stay half awake. Because if I alert myself to reality and how it is that I'm organizing and arranging my life, it'll be too difficult. See, this song, I think, is a cry for a different rule, a different reign, a different king, someone besides myself or somebody else. A reign that brings freedom, a reign that brings joy. Our fake empire is a miserable place to live. And Jesus comes onto the scene on Palm Sunday and he says, I am the real king. In this fake empire, there is one and only king whose reign brings joy and whose reign brings life. And it's Jesus. And so the reign of Jesus is sovereign. That's the first claim in this text. That's the first claim on Palm Sunday. And it's meant again to move us towards reception and away from rejection. But what's the second part? The reign of Jesus is surprising. See, the reign of Jesus is sovereign. We don't get a vote. He's king. He rose from the dead. And we don't get a vote. He's king. And that, like that's just it. He's king. We don't get a vote. And that ought to be enough for us to, to submit to him. That ought to be enough for us to bend our knee to him. But it isn't. It isn't. Because of our sin nature, we don't want that. We don't want the role of another. But what comes next might help. The reign of Jesus is not just sovereign, but it is surprising. It's surprising in a way that might melt our hearts so that we would want to follow him. The reign of Jesus, in other words, is unlike any reign we have ever seen in this world. I want you to be surprised by it this morning. I want you to be surprised first by the servant king. That is Jesus. The reign of Jesus is surprising because he comes to us as a shepherd. All royalty in those days entered into their city on a horse with regalia, and they came to impress. But Jesus enters on a donkey. Donkeys were small. Donkeys were low to the ground. Donkeys were slow. They weren't impressive at all. He doesn't have regalia. He has a bunch of sweaty disciples who have been following him in the wilderness for so long, throwing their cloaks on the ground. Just picture it in your mind's eye. If your aim is to impress, it's a disaster. By every category. But if your aim is to demonstrate to the watching world that you are a servant at heart, 
then it is a profound success. He comes as a servant king. He comes as a shepherd. He comes to serve. That is surprising. The second surprise is that he is sorrowful. This king enters the city with sorrow. One New Testament scholar says the entire gospel is in verse 41. When he sees the city of Jerusalem, what does he do? He weeps. He weeps in sorrow. Why? Because he knew so many within it would reject his reign and his rule. Consider this. When friends and family reject his reign, when they reject his peace, he doesn't rage. He weeps. That's the heart of God. The way most rulers reign is with a show of strength. And when you reject their rule, they rage. But not Jesus. Jesus is surprising. Stanley Hauerwas calls it the risk of God. Leading with love and service and not strength. Though with God it's not a risk at all. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's showing us the true nature of leadership, and he's showing the true nature of his heart. He's a sorrowful king. And then lastly, let us be surprised by the sacrificial king that is on display this morning. See, the reign of Jesus is surprising because the king, this king, is full of service, he's full of sorrow. And those two realities might melt our hearts Enough to welcome his rule, but if not, there is one more surprise to his rule that will. This king came to die for you. In our passage, we are getting a preview of the cross. We're getting a preview of what goes down on Good Friday. And the first way we see it is with the donkey. So verse 30 says the donkey is unridden. And that is a a detail that's easy to read right over. But it is remarkable. Jesus and Luke could have totally just left that detail out, but they don't. It is an unridden donkey. It is pure. It is spotless, unused. In the Old Testament, unused animals were always used for God's purposes. And I'm thinking of one in particular, the spotless lamb. King Jesus is the spotless lamb being led to slaughter for us. And we get a preview, a hint even, with this unridden donkey. And then notice in verse 35, this is the detail that didn't just catch my mind this past week, but caught my heart this past week. I've never noticed it before, but Jesus doesn't get on the donkey, does he? What's it say in verse 35? His disciples put Jesus on the donkey. I mean, if riding a donkey wasn't surprising enough and humble enough, the king of the universe is lifted and set on this humble animal. The king of the cosmos allows our hands, the hands he created, to place him on a donkey. I mean, if I were getting on a donkey, I'd be like, no, I got this. You know? 
That's what I would do. Like, I'm already humiliated that I have to ride a donkey. Like, don't add to it, please. I can handle it. The king of the world, the king of all kings, who will in five short days allow our hands to place him on a cross. And our sin to place him on the cross allows us to put him on the donkey as well. This is the surprise of King Jesus. And there are so many others in this passage. The city of Jerusalem, think about this, is a city where Jesus will be elevated as king. We've been talking about this wilderness journey. And one of the ways that we've been setting up this sermon series is by reminding ourselves that Jesus says, in verse 51 of chapter 9, as the time drew near for him to be lifted up. And this idea of being lifted up, or to be coronated, or to be elevated, or to be exalted as king, is played hard in the Gospels. But this is an elevation unlike any other. Jesus is indeed elevated as true king, but this elevation occurs when he's elevated onto a cross. And his resurrection is vindication of that coronation. He is indeed the true king. The cross, it's a device designed by the Roman Empire to dehumanize and to shame its victims. Not the royal elevation that we were all expecting, that his disciples were certainly expecting, but he does it anyway and he does it for us to erase our shame and to defeat sin. Fleming Rutledge points out how those unacquainted with the Christian story are shocked by this point. She quotes someone who says, It seems like Jesus should be sacrificed too, if he's king of all. Most kings receive sacrifices. This is surprising. Our sovereign king dies as a sacrifice for us. And he knows it. And when he enters in to the city, he's walking toward the cross for you. The poet priest, Gerard Manley Hopkins, wrote a poem called God's Granger. Familiar with this poem, God's Granger? You should be. Uh, I encourage you to look it up, to read it, print it off, put it on your fridge. Granger. God's granger. So granger is a kingly word, isn't it? It's a big word, granger. And he writes, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from ship foil. So the image is that all of the world is charged with like a cloud of electricity about ready to erupt in lightning. It's charged with the grandeur of God. Like that time when you're like temporarily blinded by the reflection of sun on a car window as it drives by. Hopkins uses an image of shook foil. That's like the grandeur of God in this world. Okay, so far so good. God is great. God is grand. We get that. But here comes a surprise. He writes, it gathers to a greatness. 
like the ooze of oil crushed. Malcolm Guit writes, How does the grandeur, the greatness of God, gather and become apparent? Crushed oil. And Malcolm Guit, himself a poet priest, reminds me that the word Gethsemane means oil press. The Mount of Olives. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives on Palm Sunday, and he knows that the grandeur of God is gathering. But the way that it gathers, friends, is not how we would expect. The way that it gathers is like crushed olives and oozing oil. That's the sacrifice of Jesus, and that's him being crushed for our sins, to undermine the powers that enslave us. The reign of Jesus is sovereign, but it is surprising. It, it is a kingship unlike any other, in its sorrow, in its service, and in its sacrifice. And so it's time for us to welcome his rule, not reject it. I mean, first of all, you're made to welcome his rule. That's how we are designed. Jesus says that the disciples don't celebrate his reign when the Pharisees are like, shut this down. Jesus says the stones will cry out. In other words, creation understands what's going on here. I am the king of the universe. And if you silence the praise and the worship of my disciples, creation will have something to say about it. These rocks. It's as if to say all of creation has made the flourish under his reign. It's almost as if the rocks have been waiting for this moment. And when the, when the Pharisees try to shut it down, the rocks are like, no, no, this is the king. And so we too, how much more than rocks, are made to worship and to welcome his reign. It's like the world is like a handrail made of rough wood. And if you go with the grain, it's smooth. If you go against the grain, you get splinters. And some of you are flinching right now, even with the image. But that is our soul. That is our bodies. Indeed, all of creation. We are meant to go with the grain of the universe, which is submitting to the good rule of Jesus. Everything else gives us splinters. And second of all, we're most alive when welcoming his rule. So Jesus says in verse 41 that all who reject his reign reject his peace. And that word peace is the word shalom, or the concept shalom, which means more than just absence of conflict, but means relational wholeness with God, with others, with ourselves, and with creation. The miracles that the disciples in this text are rejoicing are previews of shalom. Jesus, when he does his miracles, yes, displays his divinity in a way, and that is true, but he's also displaying something else. He's showing a preview of that future when shalom reigns. Under his rule. When all that is sad is made untrue, when all that is broken is restored. That's Shalom. And so we are most alive under his rule. So this is an invitation. Receive his rule. I don't know where you are in the spectrum, Pharisee, the disciple. I don't know where you are, but allow this image of Jesus to melt your heart so that you welcome his rule, his reign, to enjoy it. Jesus is king. We don't get a vote. But he is the only ruler who dies for us when we reject him. He doesn't banish us for our sins. He died for us for our sins. 
wants us to receive Him. He wants us to receive His peace. He weeps over our rejection. He does not want judgment to come. So let's welcome His reign this morning. Let's welcome Him. Lord, we bring ourselves to You this morning on this Palm Sunday. Witnessing a king unlike any other, a ruler unlike any other, and we don't really know what to do with it, so Lord, we simply bow to you. We simply submit to you. And we ask Jesus that as we do so, we would experience in part what we will experience in full when you return. Shalom. Peace. Peace with you, God. Peace finally with others. Peace within ourselves. And peace with this world you created. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.